The rich get richer, U.S. empire maneuvers to keep its grip on the world, and the now federally recognized Juneteenth holiday poses questions for the future of the fight for black freedom. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's June 22nd, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. All right, Brian, there's a number of really important stories this week. Where do you want to start? Well, before we start with the stories, again, we want to thank all of the people who make this show possible, the people who are subscribers, who donate vis-a-vis patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. As we say over and over again, we can do this show with you, but not without you. And we really mean that. We have no corporate or institutional backing. We rely on people who care about this show, like the show, and rely on this show. So if you care about it, go to patreon.com and become a subscriber. All right. Nicole, Esther, Walter, big news. The U.S., while it passed the number 600,000, a tragic number, 600,000 dead from COVID since March of last year. There's some other big numbers that we need to be talking about. You could call them tragic numbers as well, but let's just use the word outrage to describe these numbers. I'm looking at Forbes magazine. Top 1% of U.S. households hold 15 times more wealth than the bottom 50% combined. And of course, the bottom 50% would be 165 million people. In 2017, Forbes magazine, which advertises itself as a capitalist tool, published an article about the findings of wealth disparity based on their own data. It was a report done, I think, by the Institute for Policy Studies based right here in Washington, D.C., but they used Forbes' own data. And here's what Forbes wrote in 2017. The country's three richest individuals, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos, collectively hold more wealth than the bottom 50% of the domestic population. Yes, those three individuals have more wealth than 165 million people, which includes the entire U.S. working class. As the U.S. has now passed the 600,000 dead mark, as I mentioned in the beginning, the president and the members of Congress have decided to end the $300 per week supplemental unemployment benefit 
so that lower wage workers in the United States, part of that bottom 50%, will be forced back into minimum or near minimum wage jobs. I thought it was appropriate to open today's show with some new numbers, again provided by Forbes magazine. Yes, that capitalist tool. The new data is available from the U.S. Federal Reserve and shows that the wealth gap in America has widened and economic inequality increased greatly in 2020 amidst the pandemic. According to the latest Fed data, the top 1% of Americans have a combined net worth of $34.2 trillion, or 30.4% of all household wealth in the United States, again, 30.4%, while the bottom 50% of the population, that would be those same 165 million people, hold just $2.1 trillion, or 1.9% of all wealth. American billionaires have grown significantly richer during the pandemic, led by Elon Musk, who crossed the $100 billion benchmark in August to become the world's fifth centibillionaire, and saw his wealth increase by 242% over the first eight months of 2020 alone. Jeff Bezos, by the way, added $65 billion to his net worth in 2020. A critical factor in the explosion of wealth among a particular segment of the U.S. population has been access and exposure to the stock market. Again, this is Forbes. The Federal Reserve estimates that the wealthiest 10% of Americans hold more than 88% of all available stock shares, with just the top 1% controlling more than twice as much stock equity as the bottom 50%, that's that 165 million again, of all Americans combined. Jeff Bezos' worth, I put the words worth with quotation marks, is about $194 billion. On April 12, 2021, these are numbers now from a website, incomeinequality.org. On April 12, 2021, America's 719 billionaires held over four times more wealth than all of the roughly 165 million Americans in the bottom part of society. Four times as much, these 719 individuals. While the COVID-19 pandemic led to financial ruin for millions of workers and small business people, it has been a fantastic year for the billionaires. One-third of U.S. billionaires' wealth growth over the last 31 years came during the 2020-2021 pandemic. U.S. billionaires' pandemic-era wealth growth comes on top of a 19-fold increase in billionaires' wealth over 31 years. I mean, we are the socialist program. We are bringing you news and perspective and information about the movement for social justice and social change, the movement for socialism. If these numbers don't say it all, then I don't know what does. The idea that this system is somehow 
reformable, that this system has any element of justice in it. When you see the year 2020, 2021, the year of pandemic, and look at these statistics showing that this rentier class, meaning people who live off of the surplus created by the labor of others, who live by stocks and bonds, the people who do nothing has increased so much. Jeff Bezos wants to go into space. If he goes into outer space and stays there for the next year, it won't matter. His contribution to the productive economy will be the same as it was in the past year when he increased his wealth by $30 billion, and that is nothing. Jeff Bezos does nothing. Jeff Bezos lives off of the wealth created by the labor of the working class, and that's why we are fighting for a socialist program. Now, while we're fighting for a socialist program, we also are aware that we're fighting for all of the things that come right now, the things that working class people desperately need. And what working class people desperately need, especially in the black and the Latino communities who are routinely the victims of police violence and discrimination, all kinds of institutional and cultural and individualized racist attacks in America. What people need is real relief. And last week, shockingly, the U.S. Senate turned around, the Republican Party turned around and said, hey, let's make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Suddenly, like out of the blue, after like 170 years of ignoring it, but like within the last year after there was a nationwide uprising against racism, the U.S. Congress said, let's have a federal holiday celebrating, commemorating the formal end of slavery in America. Well, it's not, in fact, the formal end of slavery, but the announcement in Texas. Esther, it's an important concession on the part of the racist ruling class. But, you know, when you look at all of the things on the table, they have chosen the thing that perhaps is the most symbolic and from the point of view of content, less filled with it than all of the other demands that this movement, that this nationwide uprising against racism have been insisting on during the past 12 months. Right. So I have to first lean on the idea that any law, even a holiday that acknowledges the existence of slavery in this country is a good thing because of all the things you're just talking about. And if the Juneteenth holiday causes the real history of slavery and the Civil War to be taught, then that's a welcome counter to all these current moves and laws being passed by Republicans around the country and also by right-wing Democrats to, in essence, fight against the true history of the brutal enslavement and repression of African people and the genocide against Native Americans being foundational you know, to the ascension of the United States as a global capitalist and imperialist power. And the Juneteenth holiday could explode what I think are two major myths about the end of slavery. Like first, the Emancipation Proclamation freeing the enslaved. I think that you were alluding to that. So it's true, it established the legal basis for freedom of enslaved people which you know, Lincoln needed to do to win the war. But as the late Civil War historian Harry Jones always reminded us, emancipation had to be fought for. You know, the slavers of the South didn't just up and free people in chains. 
black people, not just in Texas, were still basically imprisoned in chains under the gun, under overseers, and would not be freed unless they freed themselves by running away during the war. And so a second point is that black people freed themselves by taking the step to run away, to join the Union Army, and to fight for their own freedom. And many were already on hand in Galveston, Texas, when General Granger arrived. So I think we have a clip of Harry Jones uh, speaking with me on, on the ground in 2015 on the 150th anniversary of Juneteenth. The 25th Corps is the only corps in American history made up of only African-American regiments. The 25th Corps is the Army Corps that captured Richmond, Virginia on April 3rd, 1865, with the headlines here in the Daily National Public and here in Washington reading, quote, Glorious fall of Richmond captured by the black troops, close quote. This 25th Army Corps would go on to stop Robert E. Lee's army at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. Hmm. thus resulting in the surrender of Lee's army to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia on April 3rd, 1865. So this is the famed 25th Army Corps that many fear. And when Granger gets to Galveston, a brigade, over a thousand of these African-American heroes are in Galveston. So certainly the word of the Emancipation Proclamation is in Galveston in the person of these conquering African-American soldiers. So that's the late historian Harry Jones. And so I think if this holiday in history is commemorated correctly, it will do much to squash what historian Gerald Horn calls the white savior narrative of General Granger arriving at Galveston on June 19, 1865. And it's partly this false narrative that allows even white supremacists to feel good about the Juneteenth holiday, you know, and that raises problems for people fighting for black liberation today in 2021. So creating a Juneteenth holiday is symbolic, you know, compared to actually supporting reparations for slavery, Jim Crow and ongoing systemic racism, discrimination, and the ways that the legacies of slavery continue through racist police terror and mass incarceration. And so I think there are some people's victories right now represented by the scheduled sentencing this week of Derek Chauvin for murdering George Floyd or in the victories of more of the true history being told. Esther, what you were saying is so important, and this is the part that we have to fight for. And as you mentioned, Juneteenth can be celebrated by the Republicans, too, now, under pressure, under pressure from the mass movement, because they can say this white Union general came to Texas and told and informed the enslaved people of Texas, you are now free. And finally, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, which was signed in January 1863, the people of Texas learned of their freedom, when in fact, This was the armed uprising of the black working class in the United States, and in particular in the southern states, but not exclusively the southern states, that caused the Union victory. I mean, 200,000 black soldiers participated in the U.S. military after the Emancipation Proclamation. 200,000. 170,000 in the Army. 30,000 in the U.S. Navy. And if anyone reads any objective accounts about how the last two years of the war played out, you can't but come to the conclusion 
that it was the intervention of black people with rifles in hand who were the decisive factor. Up until then, the South was winning the war. Most of the Northern generals were half-hearted about the war itself. They all were, almost all of them, some of them were very anti-racist, some of them were in fact Marxist, but many of them, especially the top commanders, were racists. It was the intervention of the black freedom fighters who turned the tide. Again, everybody should remember, 200,000 enslaved, formerly enslaved, and free black people joined together in armed regiments and conducted the fight as if it was a war for national liberation, which for them, of course, it was. Absolutely. And so if this law can have that story told and it can encourage other stories being told, like Elaine, Arkansas, where black sharecroppers were trying to form a union to get a fair price for their cotton and they were massacred and it led to a greater massacre of their whole community. Historians now think that up to 800 people may have been killed in Elaine, Arkansas in 1919. The other thing that I'm struck by this law is that it kind of feeds into this other narrative where you find these types of laws and measures to uplift oppressed groups are happening while the U.S. is continuing to carry out, you know, its imperialist policies that oppress black and brown people around the world and also religious groups in the LGBTQ community around the world. So they can enlist, you know, black people like Lloyd Austin to be secretary of defense or Linda Thomas Greenfield to be the U.N. ambassador to be down with the imperialist project and pass these type of laws to kind of make us feel a little better here in the homeland, you know, right here inside the U.S. But at the same time, these lawmakers in Congress, they cannot pass other things that people are looking for, like real relief from this racist police terror, from efforts across the country to suppress black votes. And so they can't do that, but they can make Juneteenth a holiday. All right, Nicole, we started the show talking about gross income inequality, the gross disparity between the growth of billionaire wealth in America and the rest of society, especially the working class. But the manifestations of power of the billionaires, and not just the billionaires, you know, the multi, multi, multi millionaires and the corporations and banks that basically keep them going as the ruling class, Their influence is everywhere. It's in the U.S. House of Representatives. It's in the U.S. Senate. Of course, all the members of the Supreme Court are rich themselves. New York City, New York, New York, the Big Apple, an important mayoral contest going on. There, too, you see the power, the immense power of big money. Let's talk about the New York mayoral race. Well, New York City, for their campaigns, their political campaigns, has a kind of a public funded program that has actually spread and been used as an example and spread to other cities, including Washington, D.C. Despite that, of course, because of the Citizens United decision from the Supreme Court, which allows unlimited spending in certain forms, you're not allowed to kind of coordinate with the candidate. But of course, you know, there are loopholes and ways around that that the uber wealthy figure out. So I say all that to say that in the New York City mayoral campaign, so far, super PAC spending, so totally untraceable, unlimited spending in the mayor's race has exceeded $24 million, $24 million. And that's about 30% of the $79 million that's been spent on the campaign so far. 
So a third of the money that's being spent to elect somebody who will lead and govern the biggest city, maybe the most important city in the country, 30% of that is by individual billionaires. So I want to go over some of them because it's really fascinating when you look at actually what's happening here. So Stephen Cohen, the hedge fund billionaire who owns the Mets, donated half a million to Andrew Yang's super PAC, unsurprising, and then another half a million to Mr. Adam. He's probably the front runner in mid-May. And then after Adams kind of took the front seat, so to speak, he's you know in the lead, then Cohen gives him another million. Another billionaire does the same thing. Daniel Loeb, another hedge fund billionaire, an outspoken supporter of charter schools, which is a theme you'll see here in a minute, and the former chairman of a charter school, donated, again, half a million to Adams and half a million to Yang in their super PACs in May. And then as Adams pulls ahead, another $500,000. I mean, these are huge sums of money we're talking about. And I just want to read a lot of this information is coming from a New York Times article that was published yesterday. And I want to read a few sentences from it because it's pretty fascinating. This New York Times article is really being written very credulously and... (laughs) It's essentially being written like, well, why would these people be spending this money? And so they've just asked this question, well, is there something that someone might hope to get from spending all this money? So here's the article. Quote, one thing some may hope to get is an expansion of charter schools in the city. Other billionaires financing super PACs in this primary include four investors who support charter schools, a favored cause of financiers who are skeptical of district public schools. And then they name the billionaires. But again, four billionaires. We're already in four billionaires who are financing these super PACs. And again, these are all people who are quote unquote skeptical of district public schools, public school being, you know, like the thing that governments fund that we have a right to that we want to make sure is actually equal and that, you know, poor children, children of color around the country actually get a good education, but that's not what charter schools provide. And then notably too, there's of course, as I think we can all imagine, there's all of this just really incestuous nature to to these echelons, upper echelons of society. So the article continues, as it happens, the president of Mr. Adams' super PAC is Jenny Sedlis, who is on leave from a charter school advocacy group, Students First New York, and co-founded Success Academy, which has received direct financial support from Mr. Griffin. So let me reread that by telling you who these people are. So Mr. Adams, Eric Adams, the front runner right now, the person who's running his super PAC was on a charter school advocacy group. Great. And she was on a charter school advocacy group that has received direct financial support from one of the billionaires who has given money to Adam. So all of this is just so incestuous. And then another variety of billionaire is the Dolan family, which owns Madison Square Gardens. They've put roughly $6 million into another super PAC, quote unquote, the Coalition to Restore New York. I want to be clear, and as does the article, quote, The Coalition to Restore New York is candidate agnostic and is not supporting or opposing anyone for office in 2021, says Rich Constable, an executive vice president at Madison Square Garden. So you can imagine what the Coalition to Restore New York is fighting for. They, quote unquote, highlight the same quality of life issues that have been central to the campaigns of Yang Adams and Catherine Garcia, who is another person who's running. They say that the things that they really want to emphasize are, quote, how they would fight crime, reignite tourism, and stop the quote-unquote exodus of New Yorkers from the city. Now, you and I might sit here and think, oh, the exodus of New Yorkers from the city, they must mean the affordable housing crisis going on in New York, and they must mean the people being pushed out of New York who've lived there for a long time who can't afford the city anymore. 
But I'm pretty sure what they mean is the spate of articles we've seen in the New York Times that are really just talking about how the very, very wealthy New Yorkers are leaving and buying condos on lakes and buying apartments that are, you know, in far off, very wealthy and beautiful places as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, it's just this this investment to these people. It's these billionaires who are in New York who want to invest in exactly what they want New York to become. They want to invest in making sure the quote unquote moderate candidates are the ones who pull ahead and who actually win in the long run. And they clearly are working toward completely demolishing any sort of public school system, any sort of equality for the people and the children of New York City. And the New York Times is just, you know, it's it's good they're writing about it. But man, the tone of this is just it's completely outrageous. I'm going to read one more sentence. Quote, those who donated to the super PAC supporting Ray McGuire may not get much of a return, quote unquote. I mean, a return? They're clearly talking about this like the investment that it is. And the rest of us, of course, cannot make these investments. The rest of us who actually need public schools can't give the half a million dollars, can't give the million dollars. So, you know, it's just such a clear example, Brian, of what you were talking about at the beginning of the show. Right. And I want to also, Walter, highlight the language that the New York Times says. So if you're in the back pocket of the billionaires, then you're a moderate. Now, moderate sounds good. Like if you're not a moderate, then you're an extremist. If you want to get rid of public education and smash the teachers unions, then you're a moderate. But if you're part of the progressive wing of candidates, all of whom are being you know, shunned by these same super PACs and shunned by the billionaires, it's actually their alarm that a progressive candidate could win the Democratic primary, the so-called moderate label hung on these people. Well, no, they're not moderate. They're extremists because they're trying to destroy that which is most important and diminish that which is most important for us, the working class and our children, which is to have decent or very good public schools. In New York City, the problem in public education, one of them is not the teachers unions, and it's not the fact that they're public schools, the fact of the matter is that one out of every 10 students in New York City's public schools is homeless. That's 114,000 students in any given day in the school year are homeless, one out of every 10. Luckily, Walter, there is a socialist running for mayor in New York, and we're going to have an interview, I think, with her next week. But anyway, let's just talk about this language of moderate. These are the really Moderate means the billionaire capitalists, the extremists are those who really want what's best for the working class in New York City, including working class kids. Yeah, well, first of all, that's an important point, Brian. There is a socialist who's entered the race for the New York City mayor's office, Kathy Rojas. You can check out more about her campaign by going on Instagram, Rojas for Mayor. You can also check out Twitter, Rojas for Mayor 2021, at Rojas for Mayor 2021. But yeah, to your larger point, yeah, I mean, this label that those who desire the complete breakdown of, of any type of social safety net that working people enjoy the rollback of rights won by oppressed people over decades and centuries of struggle. The idea that that represents a moderate pole in politics is so ridiculous. And, you know, in addition to what you said, I just wanted to highlight one other political dynamic associated with that, which is that this is something that's essential to the rise of the far right, the extreme fascistic right wing in U.S. politics, because essentially enables the rightward march of politics in this country. I mean, the idea that Social Security 
the retirement age should be raised would not have been considered a moderate issue, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? That would be a right wing extremist position. But because the Democratic Party essentially takes as a starting point whatever the most extreme right wing elements in US politics is calling for, and then tries to triangulate around that, like, okay, well, let's just be like a notch or two less extreme, less terrible than those people, and we'll call that being moderate. Well, then the next electoral cycle, the right wing can move further to the right. And then the Democratic Party, all the moderates in the Democratic Party will try to catch up with them and so on and so on and so on until you have, you know, the Tea Party becoming a dominant force in politics and later on, you know, the pro-Trump wing of the Republican Party. And now you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, all because what are in fact right wing positions, extreme conservative positions are being labeled moderate, letting the right wing just go wild and move further and further, further to the extremes of the political spectrum. Let's stay on the theme of language. You know, if you're attacking public education, attacking teachers, trying to drive low income workers back to work into minimum wage jobs, that means you're a moderate. And if you want something better for the working class, you're not moderate, meaning I guess you're an extremist. Check out this headline from the Washington Post. Joe Manchin, at the apex of his power, finds few allies in his quest for bipartisanship. Okay, I mean, we're talking about how bad the language is in the capitalist media, but this one is truly nauseating. Joe Manchin, at the apex of his power, finds few allies in his quest for bipartisanship. I mean, Manchin sunk the minimum wage increase. It didn't not only not go to $15 an hour, and again, that wouldn't have been immediately, but over numerous years, but it didn't increase by one penny. And the minimum wage hasn't gone up since 2009. The minimum wage today is 60% of what it was when Dr. King organized the Poor People's March in 1968. Manchin sunk that. He wouldn't support the American Families Plan, or at least he wouldn't help get rid of the filibuster that allows the Republicans to sink that. He made sure to say that he wouldn't support the Voting Rights Act of the Democratic Party. And the Washington Post says, in his quest for bipartisanship. No, it's not a quest for bipartisanship. Joe Manchin is a reactionary. He's a Democrat. He's also a reactionary. He's worth, quote, $7 million dollars. His daughter is a part of Big Pharma. She's, quote, worth $30 million. She raised the price of pharmaceuticals that are absolutely necessary, especially for children. Esther, this language is gross. Yes. And, you know, speaking of language, Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign led a march on Mansion last week down in Charleston, West Virginia. And it was really designed to draw attention to exactly what you're talking about, this hypocrisy and this use of language to talk about bipartisanship and what he's really trying to do when he's not trying to do that at all. I think we have a clip if we want to play a little bit of it, of Reverend Barber really getting down to the issue with Joe Manchin. Voting rights is not an issue only of race. And I want to challenge all of us in this country. The the Republicans actually want a black-white fight. That's all they, they want to make folk think that's all it is. 
But voting rights is as much an issue for my poor white brothers in the hollers of West Virginia as it is for my brothers that are black in the hood, as it is for my indigenous native brothers on the reservation, as it is for my Latino brothers and my Asian brothers and sisters. And especially here. Which side are you on, Joe Manchin? Because in, in West Virginia, 700,000 people are poor and low wealth. Which side are you on? In West Virginia, 355,000 people make less than $15 an hour. Which side are you on, Joe Manchin? In West Virginia, 46.7% of the census tracts can't even afford water. Which side are you on, Joe Manchin? Because... West Virginia needs free and unabridged voting. West Virginia needs a $15 living wage. West Virginia needs health care for everybody. West Virginia needs infrastructure. In fact, West Virginia needs a real senator that doesn't just talk about it. So that's Reverend Barber last week in West Virginia. And we don't have anybody in Virginia in Washington, D.C., or in Congress talking like that. We don't have anybody stepping outside of these categories set up by big donors where you have to basically fight against working people to stay in office. So I just give big props to the Poor People's Campaign because sometimes they're the only ones out here regularly in those types of forums speaking back to these politicians. Yeah, you know, I just was reading this article, Joe Manchin at the apex of his power finds few allies in his quest for bipartisanship. And in addition to the points that everybody's making here, I just wanted to bring up how ridiculous it is in terms of covering Joe Manchin's personal background. I mean, Joe Manchin, you know, even though he has this sort of everyman image that he likes to cultivate, I mean, he's a millionaire and he comes from an elite family. This article, it's a subheading called Close-Up View of Politics. And it sort of goes into Manchin's personal background. It really goes to great lengths to try to give him this blue-collar image. He says that Manchin grew up and at times worked as a carpet installer. Although the article also has to admit that his father owned stores that sold groceries, furniture, and carpeting. Not exactly the same thing as being a carpet installer if your dad owns the chain of stores. You know, he also talks about the modest brick home on the banks of Buffalo Creek that Joe Manchin grew up in. When he was a boy, it contained only a few rooms, but the family has expanded it over the years. And you know what? When Joe Manchin was growing up, it wasn't so humble because in addition to his family's chain of businesses, there are also major political operators. I mean, they talked about how when Manchin was 12 years old, the family hosted Bobby Kennedy and Teddy Kennedy for dinner because John F. Kennedy was running for president trying to win the West Virginia primary. I mean, these are big time political operators and we shouldn't be confused. We shouldn't be fooled by Manchin's presentation as this sort of blue collar, down to earth guy. He is a millionaire and he's looking out for the interests of other millionaires in West Virginia and across the country because that's the class that he's loyal to and is of himself. Walter, you're violating the cardinal rule of American politics. You, he is a moderate. He's not <laughs> just an evil capitalist who happens to be very rich like his parents and carrying out a war against working class people in West Virginia. He is a moderate. 
you know, he's just a poor old moderate. He's a poor old moderate. You know, the whole system is so unmoderate because everything in America, in American capitalist politics, is about money. And whether you have access to money, are you connected to the capitalist banks and to the corporations? If you are, you get this lovely label of being moderate. But in fact, this is an extreme system, a system of extreme wealth that dominates. It's an extreme plutocracy. I mean, the recent elections, I don't know how much Manchin spent, but do you know when Lindsey Graham was running to recapture his seat in South Carolina, you know how much that Senate race cost in 2020 for the two candidates? $164 million for one Senate race. And guess what? That wasn't the record in 2020. In nearby North Carolina, the two candidates and their backers spent $265 million. And of course, the Senate seat in Iowa, I mean, Iowa is all important to American politics. That seat, the two candidates spent $218 million, the two candidates and their super PAC backers. I mean, a system of extreme wealth, extreme plutocracy. In fact, it's a dictatorship of the rich. Let's go on to another story talking about the dictatorship of the rich. There was an overt open military dictatorship for a long time in Peru. It had a civilian sort of camouflage with the presidency of Fujimori. His daughter is now trying to stage a coup d'etat because there was an election where a socialist won. Esther, real quick, a military coup. That's the demand of the losing candidate Fujimori in Peru. Right. So on Friday, more than 80 retired military officers urged the Peruvian armed forces not to recognize Castillo as the president if he's formally declared the winner. And the retired officers called on military leaders to, quote, act rigorously to remedy the election, claiming Castillo would be a, quote unquote, illegitimate and illegal commander in chief. So Fujimoro is capitalizing on this sentiment by these retired military officers. She is claiming that 200,000 of the votes were not legal. Uh, She's claiming fraud with no evidence. And so I have to give credit to our friends at the Institute for Public Accuracy who really put it into context today. Throughout all of this, the OAS, the Organization of American States, which we know supported the coup in Bolivia, they have remained silent, even though they didn't come out and support a coup like they did in Bolivia here in Peru. They're not saying anything. And the longer that Castillo is not declared the official winner, the longer this kind of undercurrent of could there be a coup is fomenting and is very dangerous for the people in Peru. Yeah. But if it succeeds, it'll be a moderate coup. (laughs) Walter, Let's go on to another story. Biden met with Putin, you know, before he met, he said he he agreed he was a killer. And then he went and some of the rhetoric was toned down. But basically, the U.S. policy is the same, trying to carry out economic war against Russia. So here you have Biden coming in. Trump, who is always declared as being pro-Russia, in fact, imposed the heaviest economic sanctions ever on Russia, ever since it became a non-communist-led country after the fall of the Soviet Union. But Biden is back, and he's preparing for more sanctions. And of course, being a moderate as he is, 
He's also moderately condemning the interference by Russia in the political affairs of other countries. I mean, a truly earnest and sincere presentation about what's wrong with Russia while accusing Russia of meddling in other countries, and yes, preparing for more sanctions. That's right. I mean, Biden described his orientation, his approach towards Russia as strategic stability, which essentially means that the maintenance of the status quo, which is hostility. I mean, relations between the United States and Russia are at a very, very, very low point, I believe, because of the actions of the United States, essentially marching ever closer to Russia's borders with military equipment, military alliances and partnerships. But Essentially, Biden is saying, okay, we don't desire the intensification of that conflict. And we're also essentially not going to do anything to solve the core reasons that there is a conflict between Russia and the United States. Now, that actually disappointed a lot of hardliners in the Pentagon and in the State Department establishment, you know, the foreign and military policy elite of the United States, because they actually do want to intensify the conflict. They want relations to get to an even worse point. So there was an announcement by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, the other day that you're mentioning that the United States was preparing, although he didn't give details, preparing economic sanctions of some type to impose on Russia. So, you know, one could speculate that this is maybe a concession to those forces that were a little bit disappointed by Biden's orientation, his tone, his rhetoric during that summit. I mean, Sullivan himself is part of that camp of, you know, sort of extreme anti-Russia hawks. But, you know, ultimately, I don't think that Joe Biden is functioning as a man of peace here. It's sort of a tried and true method in the management of U.S. empire to, you know, just momentarily soften up a little bit on Russia when you're in a position of complete and total hostility towards China to foster distress between the two powers. And that was, you know, certainly what Biden was doing at the G7 summit and the NATO summit, sort of reorienting all the you know junior partners of the United States towards the new Cold War with China. So maybe he desires a momentary period of relative calm with Russia so we can focus on that, you know, perhaps even more dangerous task. But yeah, I mean, I think that's what's going on or possibly going on in terms of the strategy of U.S. empire. And of course, we have to keep in mind that the rhetoric coming from the corporate media, coming from U.S. politicians and coming from Biden himself about the supposed menace threat posed by Russia is complete nonsense. Here's one example. Let's play this clip of what Biden was saying in regard to election interference. Let's get this straight. How would it be if the United States were viewed by the rest of the world as interfering with the elections directly of other countries and everybody knew it? That's precisely how the... How would it be, Brian? How would it be? (laughs) That's precisely how the rest of the world views it because the rest of the world knows that the United States has interfered constantly in every country where the election outcome doesn't suit U.S. interests. I mean, let's just kind of go through all of the times the U.S. has intervened to carry out, you know, either intervened in the election before the election, or if the U.S. side still doesn't win, then they organize coup d'etats. I mean, of course, the classic one being the Iranian election where Mohammad Mazakdeh became the prime minister in 1950, and then he nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, AIOC, now known as BP, which was at that time a British company. The U.S. imposed vast 
deep, profound, and crippling economic sanctions on Iran. Part of the middle class became very upset with the government. The CIA and British intelligence carried out a coup. Thousands of Iranians were killed, and the U.S. put a dictator, the monarch, the king, on the throne to replace the democratically elected government. And then the Shah denationalized the Iranian oil, and it went to BP, and BP gave 40% of it to, I believe, Gulf Oil, an American company, as you know, sort of a divvying up of Iranian oil. The next year in 1954, when Arbenz, the elected government in Guatemala, dared to nationalize United Fruit, like the Iranian leader had said in 53, let's use the profits from these big American transnational corporations or British corporations to alleviate poverty in our own country. Well, the U.S. staged a coup d'etat there. But, you know, William Bloom, the late William Bloom, our friend, journalist, historian, he's documented I think it was like 85 times the U.S. has intervened in countries between 1945, the end of World War II, and just the year 2000. Yeah, and you know, we don't have to go back that far in history to find examples of this. We could look to the last time that Joe Biden was in the White House when he was vice president. And in 2009, the government of Manuel Zelaya dared to hold a non-binding referendum on the possibility that the country would establish a constituent assembly to rewrite the country's constitution according to the people's popular elected democratic will. Manuel Zelaya was the elected president of Honduras. He was not a dictator. He was democratically elected. And in 2009, when Obama was the president and Joe Biden was the vice president, the military of Honduras organized a coup against Manuel Zelaya that was backed, supported by the U.S. government. Yeah, and I think that we all mentioned that those figures don't include coups and assassinations. Right. And then there's, you know, the really famous interference. Remember Hillary Clinton or Victoria Newland, Hillary Clinton's spokesperson and later assistant, along with John McCain. They were in the Maidan, in the Maidan Square in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine in 2013 and 14 with protests against the Yanukovych government, the government that was, even if it was corrupt, it was democratically elected. And the U.S. sponsored, supported, openly supported, and embraced a fascist coup d'etat against the democratically elected government. The coup, the armed insurrection dispersed their Congress, their parliament. It created a new coup government. It was kind of like if January 6th had succeeded The Democrats and the Republicans were all about that. And it was only then that the Russian government said, look, Crimea, which is part of Ukraine, has been part of Ukraine since 1954 when Nikita Khrushchev was coming to power in the Soviet Union following the death of Stalin, when the Soviet Union included both Russia and Ukraine as one country. They transferred the area of Crimea to Ukrainian administrative control. That's why it wasn't, quote, Russian and is now Ukrainian. But it's also the biggest military installation for the Russian Republic, the Black Sea Fleet in Crimea. And when this coup happened, which was designed to bring Ukraine, what was had been the second biggest republic in the Soviet Union after Russia, right into NATO, a hostile military alliance, Putin said no, Crimea, the Russian military base in Crimea is not going to become a NATO base. He allowed the people in Crimea who are mainly Russian 
ethnically and Russian speaking to have a referendum. And they, of course, voted to, you know, reaffix Crimea to Russia. That's when all of the U.S.-Russian relations went so downhill. And that's when America said, Putin is interfering in Ukraine by allowing the people of Crimea to have a referendum, when in fact it was a U.S. intervention and planned coup d'etat against elected government in Ukraine that created the crisis in the first place. That's the truth. Those are, in fact, the facts about what happened in Ukraine. So just one more thing about Russia, though. I mean, the U.S. can't hope to, like, went over hearts and minds in Russia with this type of propaganda because people in Russia know that the U.S. has interfered in their elections. They saw what happened with Boris Yeltsin. They saw how even, I think, Time magazine or you know major U.S. publications almost bragged about how the U.S. had basically installed Yeltsin and made sure he stayed in power. Yes, 1996, Time magazine. The headline was, Yanks to the rescue, and how all of these American political advisors and American money flowed into Moscow when Yeltsin only had 6% ratings in the polls. He was going to lose, and the communists were going to win. That was 1996. So, American money flooded in to make sure that Yeltsin remained president of Russia. Anyway, let's go on, Walter, our last story as we finish this show every week. What's the latest with Liberation News, the newsletter that you produce every Monday? Thanks, Brian. Yeah, everybody, please go to liberationnews.org and sign up at the top for the newsletter. We'll send you every Monday the most important stories that we post about international, national, and local developments. A couple that I want to highlight today. This article, Squim Washington Community to Protest Racism at Local Restaurant, the most popular article this week. It's a very interesting story about a struggle against racism in the small, small town of Squim, Washington. There was a restaurant owner who is notorious for you know racist practices in this town. And people are fighting back even in this small, traditionally conservative part of the country. Also, I wanted to encourage everybody to check out an article titled, Texas Activists Protest New Anti-Abortion Law. The state of Texas has signed into law, Governor Greg Abbott has signed into law, perhaps the most restrictive abortion law in the country, a clear attempt to essentially overturn Roe versus Wade, eliminate eviscerate reproductive rights. This is an article about protests that are being held to resist this attack on women's rights. Check that out. Texas activists protest new anti-abortion law and go to liberationnews.org. Sign up for the newsletter at the top. We want to go out today by remembering Abdul Shahid Lukman, our dear friend and comrade, the husband of Jackie Lukman, also a dear friend and comrade. Abdul Shahid, also known to his friends as Abdus passed away suddenly last week. A real tragedy. He has been a guest on our show in the past. Jackie Lookman, of course, is not only a co-host of By Any Means Necessary with Sean Blackman, but she is a longtime leader and activist in the movement for social justice here in Washington, D.C. A real tragedy. We send our regards and our love to Jackie Lookman.
I also want to encourage our listeners to stay with us the rest of this week. We'll be joined tomorrow by Richard Wolf again for our weekly segment on the economy. We'll be talking about the stock market. And on Thursday, we'll be joined by journalist and scholar KJ No. So stay with us the rest of this week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>